Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You can still listen to Ghislaine Maxwell's TED Talk from 2014. She's engaging as she expresses her concerns for the ocean. Off I was. I went down into the deep and I went down to over 1,500 feet. And at 1,500 feet, I switched on the lights, hoping to see a new mythical sea creature. But in fact, what I saw was a plastic hanger. I was so absolutely devastated that it was at that moment that I realized that I was really going to dedicate the rest of my life to uh, taking uh, an involvement with and bringing an education around uh, the ocean. But apparently, Maxwell was not so devastated to see underage girls being sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein, according to the testimony of alleged victims at Maxwell's sex trafficking trial. For two weeks, jurors have been immersed in the luxurious and lascivious world of Epstein and Maxwell. As prosecutors try to show them how young girls were drawn in by the pair and then trapped in a cycle of sexual abuse. My guest is former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School. Is the broad question for the jury sort of whether they were partners in crime or whether she's being used as a scapegoat for his crime? So the defense seems to be pursuing a defense strategy or theory of the case that she is there as a scapegoat for Jeffrey Epstein because he killed himself and did not go to trial. And so therefore, she is essentially a proxy through which the victims can have their day in court. But I don't think that the prosecution sees it through that lens. The prosecution is presenting the case that regardless of what may have happened to Jeffrey Epstein, that Maxwell is independently guilty and culpable and is deserving of prosecution and conviction. How are the prosecutors building their case against Maxwell? Well, the most important evidence is the testimony of the victims who have testified in detail about their abuse and the involvement of Maxwell in that abuse including the role she played in communicating with them to initially establish a relationship and in some cases to set up the massages that were sexual in nature that they performed on Epstein. So their testimony is really critical. And that's why you see the defense attorneys going after them on cross-examination and after their credibility so aggressively. But The prosecution is also relying on testimony from people who worked for Epstein, 
like his pilot, like his household staff, to establish the relationship between Epstein and Maxwell and how close it was, how integrally intertwined she was with Epstein's affairs, to to corroborate the account of the victims insofar as it makes it more likely that Maxwell was in fact present at times when Epstein would have been meeting the victims and abusing the victims and just sort of shoring up the narrative that she was a critical player in Epstein's life in many different ways, but particularly in his residential life, managing his homes and being involved in the running of the households where so much of the abuse allegedly occurred. The alleged victims have really painted a picture of Maxwell befriending them and luring them in. Kate said after her first sexual encounter with Epstein, Maxwell said, did you have fun? You're such a good girl and I'm so happy you are able to come. The words she chose seemed to fit the prosecution's case precisely. There has been uh, an extraordinary level of detail in the victim's testimony, and so much of it is consistent between the victim witnesses in terms of describing the role that Maxwell played. So the jury is going to be left to decide whether they believe the witnesses about not only the abuse that they suffered, but Maxwell's role in it. And the level of detail, I think, is something that is going to weigh heavily in the jury's evaluation of the testimony. Has the defense made some inroads by showing inconsistencies in some of the alleged victims' statements where at trial they were, including Maxwell being present during sexual encounters with Epstein, but she was not included in their statements to the FBI? So it does seem that there were some inroads made in impeaching the credibility of some of the witnesses by pointing to apparent inconsistencies between their testimony on the stand and their previous statements. We don't know precisely what they told the FBI agents, for example, in those prior statements. I believe some of the witnesses pushed back a bit and did not acknowledge that they necessarily had made a different statement before with the the witnesses suggesting perhaps the FBI agent got the details wrong in the agent's report. And that's certainly possible. But even if it is true, that doesn't necessarily destroy the witness's credibility. It is often the case that witnesses give accounts that are different, sometimes in fairly significant details when they tell the story multiple times. Um, That's just an aspect of human memory and how human beings tell the story. And I think anybody who's tried a case would tell you that it is more often than not their experience that people give slightly different details at different times when they tell a story, and it doesn't mean they're not being truthful. It can also matter what the context was when somebody told a story um, on one occasion versus another. And so, for example, I believe one of the uh, victims who testified uh, offered by way of, of possible explanation for any inconsistency that she wasn't being asked directly about Maxwell's involvement during a previous interview, whereas now during this trial, she was being asked about that directly. Um, So on redirect or um, in closing argument, it's often possible to provide that kind of context uh, to a jury um, and therefore diffuse what might initially seem to be a very significant Uh, line of impeachment on cross-examination directed at inconsistent statements. I've heard so many 
cases of multi-million dollar settlements that it doesn't affect me that these women got multi-million dollar payouts from a settlement fund set up by the Epstein estate. But the defense really played on that. Well, it certainly seems that the defense is, is pushing as one line of argument that the witnesses are not to be believed because they have a financial motive that is causing them to testify uh, about the abuse and Maxwell's involvement in it. It's not clear how much that's going to carry sway with the jury. Um, what's also not entirely clear is how that financial motive ties into Maxwell directly. In other words, what is the defense going to say in closing about how the victims are incentivized to testify about Maxwell's involvement specifically um, if they've already received a payment from the fund created for Epstein's victims? The defense may have more to say about that, about some kind of additional financial incentive um, that they argue the victims have by virtue of naming Maxwell. But it's not entirely clear to me yet in what direction the defense is going to take that line of argument. Might the jury be prejudiced against Maxwell because of the descriptions of this opulent lifestyle, the yachts, the private jets, the sumptuous surroundings? In theory, it could. And I would imagine that the judge would instruct the jury at the defense's request not to consider wealth or the lavishness of one's lifestyle against Maxwell. But it's clearly relevant to the government's theory of the case to establish what that lifestyle was. It tells the story of how this abuse allegedly occurred, because, of course, one of the ways in which Maxwell and Epstein allegedly lured in the victims was to offer them lavish gifts and access to this lavish lifestyle. And so it would be pretty difficult to tell that story and explain to the jury how this scheme allegedly occurred without providing at least some of those details. I'm wondering if any of the jurors might fault the victims, which you shouldn't do, but might fault the victims because they were all paid by Epstein in different ways. And some of their contacts with Epstein, one of the victims, the contacts lasted from the age of 17 to the age of 30. And I'm wondering if that might you know, play in the minds of some of the jurors. I think that is something that the prosecution would be thinking about as a concern. Um, I believe the prosecution put on an expert witness to address some of the psychological dynamics involved in sexual abuse, to address some of those issues and to explain um, to a jury that may not otherwise be familiar with some of the dynamics, um, why, for example, a victim might remain in communication and contact with their abuser. Um, certainly that those are uh, concerns that arise in cases involving sexual abuse. Uh, it's not unique to this one. Um, but through uh, expert testimony um, and also on some of the redirect examination of the witnesses, really probing some of these questions, you know, why did you stay in contact with him? Um, the prosecution hopes to overcome those the questions that might arise in the juror's mind and then also to address it finally in their summation. What does the prosecution really have to prove to this jury about Maxwell? That she brought the girls in and facilitated his sexual encounters with them? Is that enough? The government's going to need to show that Maxwell was a knowing participant in the 
sex trafficking activities that Epstein was engaged in. So as I understand it, the defense theory is that Maxwell was part of Epstein's life, but that he compartmentalized his life. And so she was unaware of what it was that he was doing with the minor girls behind closed doors. And so the government needs to persuade the jury that Maxwell was involved in those sexual activities, that she played a number of roles in helping them to occur. And she did that knowing full well what it was that was happening behind closed doors. And as the government alleges with Maxwell herself being involved in some of those activities. So it's a question of both the actions that she engaged in and her intent. Maxwell's attorneys haven't said if they'll call any witnesses yet. It seems unlikely that Maxwell herself will take the stand, but is that a possibility? There is always the possibility that she will take the stand. I think it's too soon to say definitively one way or the other whether they're going to do that here. There are clear risks for her in taking the stand, but I'm sure her lawyers are evaluating what they think the strength of the government's evidence is at this point and whether it's worth having a discussion about Maxwell taking the stand. The defense had given notice about several expert witnesses who they wanted to call, including psychological experts to talk about, for example, what the defense described in pretrial filings as the halo effect that they would argue that Jeffrey Epstein benefited from which caused people around him to essentially want to be in his presence and to see the best in him as a possible explanation for why Maxwell might not have known what he was doing in the parts of his life or the compartments that they argue he kept from Maxwell. So there may be expert testimony of that nature. There may be expert testimony intended to explicitly rebut some of the expert testimony about sexual abuse and its dynamics that the government offered. And beyond that, we don't know exactly what witnesses the defense may call, whether it would be fact witnesses who might talk about facts that might support this notion that Maxwell was removed from Epstein in important ways that would undermine her presence and knowledge of his sexual activities with minors. In theory, they could call character witnesses about her character that would tend to undercut the charges that have been brought against her. So I think we really need to wait and see. It seems like there's a parallel between these two high-profile cases where women are defendants on the East Coast and the West Coast. I'm referring to the Elizabeth Holmes trial, where she's blaming her former romantic partner for the things that she's charged with. And here you have Maxwell blaming her former romantic partner for the things that she's charged with. There are some interesting parallels to consider between the two cases. Obviously, the charges are so different. The Holmes case involving fraud, the Maxwell case involving sexual abuse of minors. But you are right that there is a parallel in the sense of in each case, you have a woman on trial and a male figure being this very dominant presence at the trial and being blamed for being essentially exclusively responsible for the crimes that have been alleged. In the Holmes case, Sonny Balwani will stand trial, her chief operating officer and also her one-time boyfriend, who she says essentially misled her about Theranos and also controlled her through an abusive relationship. And she was, of course, 18 um, or younger when she met him. But Elizabeth Holmes was the CEO and founder of Theranos. In the Maxwell case, I mean, Maxwell was clearly subordinate to Epstein in terms of the role she played in his affairs. There's no claim that she was essentially the CEO 
she was very much, it would seem, an employee of Epstein. And so there's a difference there in the relative roles played. But it will be interesting to see in the Maxwell case, as the defense starts to put forward its case, assuming it does put forward a defense case, if there is an attempt to portray that relationship between Epstein and Maxwell in a way that echoes themes of the Holmes trial, any suggestion that Maxwell was sort of under Epstein's sway in some manner. I don't think we're going to see that, but it is remarkable that we do have these two such high-profile trials going on simultaneously now on two coasts. Thanks, Jessica. That's Professor Jessica Roth of Cardozo Law School. The Supreme Court appears ready to give another win to parents seeking public funds for religious education. At oral arguments this week, all the court's conservative justices suggested that Maine was violating the Constitution's free exercise clause by barring the use of public dollars at religious schools. The conservative justices and the liberal justices appeared to have opposite views on what constitutes discrimination on the basis of religion. Here are justices Brett Kavanaugh and Sonia Sotomayor. And the first neighbor says, we're going to send our... uh child, children to secular private school, they get the benefit. The next door neighbor says, well, we want to send our children to a religious private school and they're not going to get the benefit. And I don't see how your suggestion that the subsidy changes the analysis. That's just discrimination on the basis of religion. These parents are put to the same choice that every other parent in Maine is put to. Either get a free public secular education, or pay for your religious training. They're being treated as everybody else is. Justices Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan questioned why Maine should be required to fund the teachings of the schools in question. Schools believe they don't want to have gay students. They can't. They can't have gay teachers. Uh, They have to teach that the man is uh, the boss of the women and a bunch of other things like that. I mean, these schools are overtly discriminatory. They're proudly discriminatory. Other people won't understand why in the world their taxpayer dollars are going to discriminatory schools. My guest is Richard Garnett, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Rick, explain the issue here in the context of prior cases. So the question presented here has to do with a program in the state of Maine that provides public funding to students who live in a district that doesn't have a traditional public school. It provides public funding for them to attend schools in other districts or to use public funds to attend a private school. And students have used these public funds to attend private schools all over the country, wide variation of institutions. But Maine has a rule that funds can't be used at a school if that school is deemed to be, quote unquote, sectarian. And so the question is whether that exclusion by the state of Maine is unconstitutional discrimination against religion. The Supreme Court has made it clear that governments are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion or to hold it against citizens that they make religious choices and so on. And there's been a couple of cases in the last few years decided by the court which have been kind of inching up to this main case. There was a case out of Missouri called Trinity Lutheran and a case out of Montana called Espinoza. And in both of those cases, again, relatively recently, the Supreme Court said that when the government makes benefits available according to certain criteria, It can't discriminate against beneficiaries simply on the ground of the beneficiary's religious status. And what was Maine's position here? According to the 
state of Maine, they would say, well, we're not discriminating on the basis of religious status. Rather, we're discriminating or we're excluding schools that have a pervasively religious character that are involved in religious instruction. I think the word that the lawyer for the state of Maine used repeatedly was we exclude schools that are involved in instilling religious faith in children. So Maine would permit funds to go to a school that was, you know, religiously affiliated, but otherwise didn't really have any religious content. What they won't do, though, and they have, you know, government officials whose job it is to kind of evaluate these schools and decide whether they are sectarian, which I guess is Maine's term for pervasively religious, or whether they're merely religiously affiliated. And the challengers are saying, well, this is the same thing. If you're discriminating against people because of their religious beliefs, want to educate their kids in a meaningfully religious school, essentially you're saying that benefits that they're otherwise entitled to as residents of the state of Maine in a district without a school, that they lose them. They're being punished, in a sense, for their religious choice. And the lawyers for Maine and also the United States took this position, would say, no, that's not what's happening here. Instead, what's happening is that Maine is simply deciding what kind of education it wants to subsidize, and Maine has decided that it only wants to subsidize secular or non-sectarian education. So this is kind of the third in a series of cases that present similar issues. And I think the reason why it's closely watched is because the other two cases seem to be pointing toward this one. And so I guess the issue is whether the court is going to kind of continue on the same path that those two previous cases sketched out, or whether there's something different about Maine's program that'll lead the justices to say, no, this exclusion is permissible. Did it appear that a majority of the conservative justices seemed ready to rule against Maine. That would be my impression, you know, with all the caveats that justices ask questions all the time that don't necessarily tell us which way they're going to rule. The first of this series of cases I mentioned, Trinity Lutheran from Missouri, that was seven to two. It wasn't a, an ideologically divided case. The more recent one, Espinoza, that was five to four. And so I suppose it wouldn't be surprising if this case out of Maine was also five to four or six to three, given new membership. The questions that the more conservative justices were asking seem to be pressing Maine on the claim that this isn't really discrimination against religion. So there were a lot of hypos and kind of intriguing questions trying to flesh out the question whether what Maine is doing here is really just kind of a neutral way of deciding what it wants to fund, or is this really the same kind of exclusion on the basis of religion that the court has already said is impermissible? And tell us about the liberal justices' concerns. So uh, Justice Breyer sounded a theme that um, has been uh, important to him for at least two decades. He, he said, look, the state has an interest. And of course, remember, he, he's been in dissent in a lot of these cases over the decades. So in a sense, he's uh, at a little bit of a bind, as he acknowledged in the argument. But he said the state of Maine has an interest in deciding that it will um, reduce the possibilities of political strife, political division, if Maine just says, look, we are going to have a policy of only sending public funds to, um, to non-religious schools, that that'll be a way of kind of preserving peace in a pluralistic society. And the, the, the more conservative justices sort of pushed back on, on that and said, well, that's not a constitutional standard. And in any event, how do we know whether it's more or less divisive to exclude religious schools rather than to include them? I think for Justice Kagan, and um, she was, as she often is, very focused and precise in her questioning, she she conceded that, of course, when the government's regulating, it doesn't make sense to distinguish between, you know, discrimination on the basis of religious status and discrimination on the basis of religious use. But 
she proposed that when you're talking about funding or what she called subsidization, that in that particular context, states should have the leeway to decide whether or not they want to fund, again, it's not a question of prohibiting, but whether or not um, they want to fund uh, certain kinds of education or not. It's a fascinating question that comes up in law a lot is how do you decide when what the government's doing is penalizing somebody versus simply declining to benefit them? Is that a tomato-tomato kind of thing, or are there, are there meaningful distinctions there? And I think Justice Kagan was suggesting that there, there is a distinction that can be drawn between discrimination in the context of a regulation or discrimination in the context of access to a general benefit on the one hand, and she wouldn't call it discrimination, I think, but a government decision about what it wants to fund. Would the court have to overrule the 2004 Supreme Court precedent in the case that upheld a Washington state post-secondary grant program that excluded theology students? Interesting. Yeah, that, that's the Locke v. Davey case. Um, and there was some exchanges between the, the lawyers and the justices on this point. I think it was pretty clear that they would not have to overrule it. That is, Locke v. Davey was about a particular situation where the state was declining to fund actual training for the ministry. That was a case where the state was perfectly willing to fund students going to religious schools, including pretty pervasively religious schools, and students were allowed to study religion if they wanted to, to take religious ministry classes. The exclusion was very narrowly focused on majoring in basically pre-minister studies. And um, the lawyer for those challenging this main law said, you don't have to overrule Locke v. Davey to say this is a different case. Some look at this as a slippery slope that could lead to public funds being used for church-sponsored charter schools. The really intriguing question is whether a charter school program is analogous to the benefits program here. Charter schools, at least in theory, are government schools. And so it could be that states are perfectly permitted because they're going to regard them as public schools. It follows that they're not going to be religious schools. But of course, and this is what I think the, the commentary is getting at, if we think of a charter school authorization program as being more like a general scholarship or school choice program, well, then it would look kind of weird if having a charter were a benefit, but it was being denied to religious would-be charter school operators, but being granted to charter school operators who wanted to have STEM schools or art schools or what have you. So that will be a question that will arise. It's, I think it's difficult to predict it how, exactly how it would come out because different states structure their charter school authorization processes differently. But at least for now, it strikes me that there is a distinction that can be drawn between, um, on the one hand, states that decide to let some of their public schools be run as charters, but they're still public schools. And on the other hand, a program like Maine's, where Maine decided to permit the funding of private schools. The, the lawyers for the state of Maine were very candid. You know, kids can use this funds. Fancy prep schools like Andover, they've used them in states outside of Maine. Again, they can even use them at some religiously affiliated schools. But they're excluding certain religious schools on the basis of their religious character. And I, I suspect that, that that's different from the, the charter school question. But the charter school question will be certainly on a lot of people's minds, and I suspect there'll be some litigation about it. Thanks so much for being on the show, Rick. That's Professor Richard Garnett of Notre Dame Law School. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company 
just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The Senate Judiciary Committee deadlocked along party lines on advancing three of President Joe Biden's judicial nominees to the full chamber, including an LGBT trailblazer and a pick for the largest appellate court. Joining me is Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. Carl, let's start with Holly Thomas, who's nominated to the Ninth Circuit. Why was the committee deadlocked on her nomination? Well, the Republican senators, especially Cruz, Cotton, and Hawley, uh, were very critical of litigation that she undertook before she became a judge in the state system in California uh, for the ACLU and for the Department of Justice, principally in the area of uh, transgender students in schools. But uh, she seems to be quite qualified, and she said she clearly understood the difference in being an advocate uh, as a lawyer and being a judge, and she has done that for several years in the California system. But Senator Graham at first voted for her, but then changed his mind, and so it became an 11-11 tie. And so she would have to be discharged from committee, 
and would join Jennifer Sung for the Ninth Circuit as well, who had a tie vote. And I expect that both of them will be coming up soon uh, for cloture and final vote. So she would be the second black woman to ever serve on the Ninth Circuit. Tell us a little about her background. Well, I believe she was with the ACLU for some time as uh, a litigator, and I think it has argued cases in more than half the circuits. And I believe she was at the Department of Justice, maybe in the Civil Rights Division, and has litigated civil rights issues there and then has spent uh, several years on the California Superior Court in Los Angeles. One of the other nominees that was deadlocked was Charlotte Sweeney, who was nominated to the district court for the District of Colorado. Well, she's been uh, in practice, I think, for a couple of decades and seems very experienced and has won some high-profile cases involving issues of equality for LGBTQ people and she would be, if confirmed, the first woman LGBTQ individual west of the Mississippi to be uh, a district judge. Um, and there was not very much discussion of her um, in committee, um, and the senators seemed satisfied and didn't ask her a whole lot of questions during her hearing. So it's puzzling exactly why um, she didn't get more votes. But that's where she sits, and they could be a discharge petition on her as well. And what do you know about Hernan Vera, who was nominated to the Central District of California to be a district court judge? Well, he also, I think, sits on the Superior Court in um, California, and very little questioning or discussion about him. Um, but I do believe he had a background in public interest law for a large firm that uh, conducts that kind of litigation. So maybe that was of concern to the Republican senators. But in any event, he had a similar 11-11 tie vote. But I don't believe that he's been controversial on the state bench there where he sat in, in Los Angeles. So could it be that Biden is getting to the more controversial nominees that in the beginning he nominated people who went through easily, and now he's getting to the more controversial ones? Well, it could be that, but also it seems like the Republicans are doubling down um, and raising issues that really don't seem very appropriate. For example, with Holly Thomas, they talked about uh, Loudoun County down here in Virginia where there was an issue involving a transgender student. Uh, but subsequent to the time they questioned her, it became clear uh, that the Republicans didn't have their facts correct. Uh, and she said she had never even heard of the case. And so um, that's not surprising because it was very low profile. So it's just hard to know, but uh, it does seem except for Lindsey Graham, there have been very few departures uh, from party line votes in committee on the Republican side. And he has gone back to the, his old practice uh, from the Obama administration and earlier saying if the president sends up a nominee who is well qualified, uh, then Graham will vote for that person because he gives the president the benefit of the doubt. 
And so it's been unusual when he's voted no, but he has voted no on some and has uh, voted pass on others, which has uh, allowed some people to then get to the floor and be confirmed. And so, but everybody else is pretty much voting no, with some exceptions, especially as to appellate nominees. So the committee did favorably report nine Biden judicial nominees, including Gabriel Sanchez for the Ninth Circuit. He is now um, an appellate judge there, an intermediate appellate court, uh, I think, in Northern California. Uh, He's been there a couple of years. He uh, worked on judicial selection and many other issues uh, during the administration of Governor uh, Jerry Brown. And I think had a strong hearing, but many questions from Republicans especially that he would be um, an activist on the court. But he said his experience of being a judge has shown him, and he knew when he came on the California State Court that he had to leave his advocacy and activism behind. And uh, I think his record shows that he did that. And so uh, he did get Senator Graham's vote, and it was 12 to 10. Uh, And he does seem quite qualified. And so I think he'll easily be confirmed, but it may be close. Let's talk a little about the White House commission that's examining changes to the Supreme Court. The report is going to be basically the pros and cons of different proposals. What do you think has come out of this commission? Well, I think the commission has three dozen very well-respected lawyers and law professors and others who are intimately familiar with the Supreme Court and the confirmation process. And they did a lot of very hard and very difficult work in a very short compass of time. The president's executive order setting up the commission did not ask for recommendations, and I believe they're not going to give any. But what they did do is compile uh, a report that I think they will issue very shortly uh, after today's public hearing late afternoon, but uh, essentially trying to look at both sides of this issue about the court and whether there might be ways to improve the court and um, have done a lot of research, didn't always agree, but I think have tried to set out uh, the important issues and uh, show the pros and cons. So I think it's been a valuable exercise. Um, And the president himself, in setting it up, said, I don't want recommendations. I uh, am inclined not to agree with the idea of packing the court. Uh, And I think he's also expressed publicly he's not uh, very interested in the prospect of some kind of term limits for the justices. Um, But they have thrashed out all those issues, and I think in a productive, uh, helpful, valuable way, Uh, So that exercise in itself is commendable and helpful and hopefully will move the debate forward. They embraced sort of of middle-of-the-road kind of changes or continuations like live streaming of oral arguments and advisory ethics code. But when it came to expanding the membership of the court or even term limits, they said there was profound disagreement If the Supreme Court 
overturns Roe v. Wade or even just, as expected, affirms the Mississippi law, is the pressure going to build on Biden to make changes to the Supreme Court? Well, it may, but he has, I think, been resistant to that so far. Um, He's something of a traditionalist and an institutionalist vis-a-vis the confirmation process. So I think he appreciates all that and the deep history and has been involved in it. He shepherded five or so Supreme Court justices through the confirmation process when he chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee in the late 80s. And so he's intimately familiar with the problems in the confirmation process and also with the Supreme Court. And there may be pressure, but any of this, these proposals, especially the term limits and the idea of packing the court or increasing the number of justices, uh, would at least have to go through Congress. Um, And as presently constituted, it's not realistic to expect that legislation would garner 60 votes in the Senate. And so maybe it's just an academic debate, but that's a debate worth having, and they have had it. Term limits, I think, is less controversial than than changing the composition of the court, because I think what Roosevelt tried to do in the 30s has been discredited. And most people, I think, still believe that that's not a very good idea, and it would politicize the court even more. Term limits, I think, is more acceptable to a broader range of people, but it has some issues, too. And I think even on the commission, there were a number who thought it was not a very good idea. Um, the commission lays all that out, and I think in a productive way. And so hopefully people can continue to study these issues and decide whether any of the, the proposals is good enough to embody in legislation and move forward. Let me ask you this. Should the Supreme Court be reflecting the position or the views of a majority of Americans? Yes, to some extent. I mean, we hope the Supreme Court reflects the will of the people, but the Supreme Court also believes that it must be adhere to the Constitution. And I think that's where people can differ sometimes on specific issues. Abortion is one of those issues that has been with us for a long time. Uh, But many others over the history of the court and the country uh, have been issues that are controversial. And hopefully most of the decisions will reflect the will of the people. Um, But there are also other ways to attack that problem if you see it as as a problem, and that is to vote people out of office and then vote in people who will change the composition of the court, for example, when there are vacancies or even entertain this legislation. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. 
That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.